I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apet. And I'm Jill Duggan. And this is Join the Dots. I'm an environmental economist. Sabina is an environmental scientist. Jill is an expert in climate and energy policy. We've spent our careers giving advice about the environment, and we know choices are never straightforward. Here in each show, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet, and our planet. Welcome to this winter holiday edition of Join the Dots. For many of us, we're going to be celebrating Christmas in the next few weeks, but there are lots and lots of different seasonal celebrations. And of course, this year has been a particularly difficult year, and many of us are looking to this seasonal celebration as a way of being able to salvage something from 2020 without spreading infection, I hope. We will be looking at what is the environmental impact of some of the things that we do at this time of year while trying to avoid being too Scrooge-like and bar humbug. So over to Edger, who's been looking at these festivals and what they mean to us and where they come from. So there are many celebrations in the month of December. All the main religions have some and some cultures have their festivals. To me, anyway, it seems all linked to what happens in nature. Things die, leaves drop, so that new life can be born again in the spring. And there are elements of that in all these festivals, and we will have a list of these and further details and links on our website. But in trying to understand the commonalities on these festivities, I spoke to Reverend Canon Nigel Cooper before this recording, He's the chaplain of the Anglia Ruskin University. I met him before in my economics works and in fact I co-authored the paper with him and many others because he works on the philosophy of conservation and environmentalism and his current focus is very much like mine. How do we value all the benefits nature provides us? And he reminded me the Christmas story in Matthew and Luke's gospel, probably legend-based, he added, um, is around a pretty poor village carpenter and his family, an ordinarily placed person. And when you combine that with the journey to Bethlehem, it's really about a very immaterial world. It's about survival. It's about looking after your family, survival in uh, under an oppressive regime. And he was very keen to point out that actually the spirit in this Christmas festival, it was about coming together. It was about seeing what you valued in them and finding the love in each other and in the relationships that we build with each other. It wasn't about buying the latest thing on the shopping charts and spending a lot of money, but actually spending more of that even more valuable resource time. So that's what the reverend, good reverend, told me. But what is it that we like or dislike about this time of year? To me, what's important about Christmas or the winter holiday is sharing time. And from my background, that means sharing food with the people I love, especially when we lived in the States where I grew up. What was important was cooking and eating together. What I find more and more as I become more old and grumpy, I feel more oppressed 
by the consumerism and the obligations of the holidays, the need to buy and give and write and do and the checklist of duties rather than the things that bring me joy. So in this Christmas, what I really want to do is reach out to those I love electronically since I can't do it physically. Well, what I really like about the Christmas holiday is that everyone else is on holiday as well. And that's what I liked about Eids when I was growing up in Turkey, that you didn't have this pressure that you were having a time off and everyone was working. Everyone was present. But it's not just Christmas, you know, Eid's traditions have changed as well. People use that to go away on holiday rather than go and visit each other and their neighbours and families. That's pre-COVID times. Visitation is a bit limited. So the idea that everyone is doing the same thing, even if we're not together physically, I really liked. Jill, how about you? Well, certainly as a child, I love the kind of anticipation and I always thought that it ought to snow at Christmas, which I guess is an American idea, actually, because it never snows in the UK at Christmas. But I think as an adult, I spent years and years and years where I felt like I was just traveling around the country to see in-laws and other relatives and it became an awful chore. And then, of course, when you have young children, it's their anticipation does make it all worthwhile. But it's really about seeing people, relaxing, not having the pressure of work, going on long walks. And one of the best Christmases I ever had, actually, I went and did a walking holiday in Italy. And that was just fabulous. It was really nice. No gifts, nothing. It's interesting that all three of us really talk about what is important to us is that the holiday gives us permission and an opportunity to be and share with the people we love. And none of us are really talking about the presents and the stuff. But that seems to be what dominates if we all just got together and had a meal with the people we loved, we wouldn't be having this episode, would we? Yeah, we're not here to talk about how wonderful getting together with loved ones is. We're here to talk about how not wonderful buying lots of stuff that nobody needs is. When I was a kid, Christmas presents were different. There's less delayed gratification nowadays. If we need or want something, we tend to buy it. And so we don't have this list of things that we can give each other that really make each other's lives better. When my daughter needed a tennis racket for her tennis lessons, I bought it the next day because her instructor told me when I need socks. I purchased them. Those are the sort of things we used to get for Christmas, which pushes us to be buying things simply for the sake of buying them, because that delayed or accumulated need is not how we gift anymore. Well, I know I'm part of quite a large family. I've got three sisters and a brother, and we moved relatively quickly to the secret Santa and then nothing actually between us so that it becomes a very, very small group of people for whom I buy gifts at all. And that those will be the people that I'm actually seeing on Christmas Day, probably. Because otherwise, I think it does get out of hand. And you come home with a load of stuff that you don't know what to do with, and you may not need. And it may be really lovely, but you don't need it. And you've got to find somewhere to keep it. Sabina, you particularly have a bugbear about things with names on. (laughs) Well, it's not just the names on it. It's giftware. It's the things we buy because we have to buy something often 
cheap tat or something funny or cutesy that is really enjoyable as you open it up and then ends up in a landfill. But as you say, also the candle holder with your name written on it that you know, you can't even re-gift. I did some quick research in the global market on personalized giftware, which is, I think, just a subset of the tat we're talking about, is over 19 billion, 19 billion pounds, $25 billion in 2020. Gosh. That's an awful lot of money going to that mug with your name on it that goes to the back of the cupboard. Plus all the environmental costs of sourcing, producing, shipping those products around the world. That brings us to what should we be producing and what should we be buying? Should we be buying gifts simply because tradition tells us to? Mm. My kids prefer money nowadays Mm. because they're young people starting out. We tend to try Mm. to find one or two things they can unwrap, but I spend a lot of time making sure it's something they need I personally much prefer gifts that are the I thought of you when I saw this and might happen at any time. I mean, I particularly remember a time when you sent some Turkish pistachios in the mail Mm -hmm. when I was having a difficult day. That's me, by the way. That's Yes, Ed (laughs) That meant much more to me than if you had sent them because we were doing a gift exchange on a specific day. Can I give a gifting tip? Because you talked about money, that reminded me. Last few years, I've been giving vouchers to Neil. I make a card, so driving license, in the, a card in the shape of a car. The advantage of gifting like that is that he forgets to spend the voucher. <laughs> so I can give it the next year again. <laughs> I mean, you have a good point about gifts, gifts of experience or time. Mm. I mean, uh, when we were kids and had no money, we would give these little coupon books like, you know, we'll we'll iron one of your shirts or whatever. And we also hope they wouldn't be redeemed. The advantage of given time, of course, is that it has very little, if any, environmental costs. Can I list the other things that we thought about in terms of having environmental impact and maybe we'll go through them? One is travel, but we're not going to be traveling very much this Christmas. There's food, of course. There are things about Christmas paper, cards, crackers, tinsel, glitter, um, Christmas trees. I have something to say about that. And then we can go into what can we do to reduce those impacts. So travel and COVID, we are allowed But uh, you're not that keen, Sabina. Well, I mean, I desperately want to see my friends and family, and I'm aching for them. However, just because the government says I can doesn't mean that it's safe. Yes, we have a reprieve, and basically what it's saying is there are enough hospital, more hospital places now for those of us that fall ill because we've gotten together over the holidays. I would much rather have many Christmases with my kids and have a Zoom one now. Everybody can make their own choice. And if everybody can distance because they have a space or isolate first because they can, but my children can't, they have to go out to work. And we don't want to have thrown away almost 300 days of being careful. I think we need to think about how we can be together apart, but everybody's going to have to make their choice. I I would just warn 
that permission doesn't mean it's safe or sensible. Thinking about Christmas food, in previous years, the Carbon Trust actually recommended that inviting as many people for Christmas actually does help cut down on the environmental costs, one large turkey or whatever, rather than lots of people cooking separate Christmas dinners or festive dinners in their own homes. So we have done a couple of episodes on food recently on Join the Dots, and we asked our recent guest, Professor Bridget Emmett, what her thoughts were on the festive dinner. Well, after having this conversation, I'm thinking instead of the turkey, just because it's traditional, I should be doing Welsh lamb. I live in Wales. The problem is I have an American partner who's rather attached to his turkey. Then there's this whole globalization issue to deal with as well. One of the nice things about the Christmas session is that you do at least eat the seasonal vegetables. That's part of the tradition. So the root crops, the seasonal, it's one of the meals that we have where really we do use our, hopefully our local and our seasonal produce. And even the Christmas pudding is using those dried fruits that have been stored from the growing season. So if we just didn't eat too much, it's quite a good meal, is it? I suppose the main thing would be not meat at all. And I have to say one of the best office Christmas meals we've ever had was when we went to the local vegan restaurant. And even the meat eaters said it was the best meal that they'd ever had for their Christmas dinner. So perhaps that's another change I should think about. Our previous episodes also talked about the food waste this time of year. It's one of those times when people always buy too much. Thinking about how we use leftovers is very good and what we can share. There are a number of people who are not going to have a very good Christmas this year because they've lost their jobs or they are suffering. And it's thinking about how we can use freezers, etc., to make sure that we don't create so much food waste. But I find it can be hard to scale back some of the traditional cooking. I have read that there's a shortage on small turkeys There are a number of things we traditionally make that we tend to cook in bulk and we have to be mindful about making fewer biscuits or freezing some of the dough, as you say. It was covered in the news that some of the turkey producers are adapting by selling turkey crowns instead of whole turkeys. It's not very easy to necessarily change your traditional business. You know, if you're a turkey farmer set up to sell live turkeys, for example, changing to selling just crowns, it's a massive investment for your business. And you can't just grow smaller turkeys to be available at the right time. It's hard to adapt your business model. And of course, if we're talking about the UK, which is where the three of us reside at the moment, turkeys are not traditional. And I think in my childhood, we did used to have chickens, which do come in smaller sizes. In Turkey, we have chickens. (laughs) Coming from a German family in California, we always had goose. And although Mm. geese are rather large, there's a lot less meat on them. So we didn't have these masses of leftovers. Other alternatives available, especially nut roast. Nut roast. Thank oh, you. we had a vegetarian friend for Christmas dinner last year, and my daughter made the most beautiful mushroom and chestnut pie for her. We envied it as we <laughs> ate our turkey. One thing about the whole Christmas tradition is a number of the things we do is to use purchase and use single-use items such as wrapping paper, often with metallics or plastics and mylar that aren't recyclable, Christmas crackers, which are only partially recyclable, usually with plastic 
cat in the middle, glitter, which we're recognizing as a microplastic risk source. I would argue that we should step back and think about what we do and don't need. I've been trying to wrap with reused paper or scarves. We can print on the brown paper wrapping that's coming in a lot of our shipments or simply put a ribbon on the box an item comes in on or be sure that the items we're using are recyclable and maybe that the crackers don't have plastic rubbish inside. If you're imaginative, you can probably find alternatives to crackers, which, again, it's all about the excitement of the hidden and getting a surprise. That's right. Could be a sprout, I guess. <laughs> a sprout, <laughs> Brussels sprout. Like advent calendars. And we've touched on a lot of these concepts yeah. in previous episodes about PPE and other things. The principles are the same. If you can use something that's either reused or repurchased or recyclable or reusable, you should prioritize that over something that is going to be in a landfill forever. That's right. And you can find on our website some more information about what kind of problems these short-lived one-time-use products lend us in. Edgy, I think you have an interesting analysis of whether to have a natural or a plastic Christmas tree and the trade-offs involved in that decision. Yes, I did look at it because it was one of the decisions that I was grappling with. We have a very small flat, two cats that love climbing up things, so probably won't get a Christmas tree this year. But I, I had a research and actually the oldest article I found about whether to buy natural or artificial ones was from 1965. I was very surprised. Uh, and they were looking at sales volumes of natural versus artificial. And they were saying there were more and more people switching to the artificial option, but the speed with which that switch was happening was slowing down. Um, so it must have started even earlier, maybe in the 50s when plastic was a fantastic product. There are things to concern about the raw material that makes the tree. So in the natural case, it is the tree. Um, and artificial is obviously plastic oil-based. And then I looked at things about production process, transportation, and what happens to the tree after Christmas. So for natural stuff, it is the tree that we know, and it's usually across the countries that grow Christmas trees. The producers say that one to three tree, one, oh God, the tongue twister, one to three trees are planted for each one <laughs> that's cut. Of course, trees capture carbon as they grow, and the younger trees, because they grow faster, they capture more carbon. But the catch there is that they are planted in single species plantations. And if you use a lot of fertilizers or pesticides while you're growing Christmas trees, you are kind of negating the carbon benefits and avoiding oil emissions from the artificial tree. So the recommendation is that new plantations for Christmas trees should go on landscapes that can't do anything else. Don't cut down the pristine forest and turn that into a Christmas tree plantation. But I don't think that's happening a lot. And also you don't use herbicides, the things that stop weeds from growing in the plantation. 
When you look at plastic trees, you're talking about oil being the raw material and, of course, plastics production with associated emissions and chemicals and health risks and environmental risks and emitting carbon as opposed to the natural option, which is sequestering carbon. When it comes to transportation, of course, buying trees that is produced as locally to you as possible, reducing the distance travelled is a good thing. And for artificial trees, they're usually made in China. So they are travelling a long distance, even if they're shipped, which is a slightly lower emission per mile travelled. The studies say that you need to use the same artificial tree at least for 10 years for it to have the same carbon footprint as the natural one. And really, are you going to use the same artificial tree for 10 years? Mm -hmm. Some people will, some people won't. For natural Christmas tree, for post-use, uses that allow for carbon to be stored are better, of course. For example, turning them into wood chips for ground covering, like in playgrounds or in public gardens, because the councils collect Christmas trees to use the wood chips for that. They're also replacing an oil-based alternative material for ground covering. Anyway, my conclusion is that if you're going to buy a Christmas tree, I think it's better to buy a natural one. But I'm assuming that if you turn Christmas trees into wood chips, then they break down and release their carbon or other, well, they rot, so they're releasing other greenhouse gases, aren't they? Naturally, some of it, when it biodegrades, will eventually be consumed and respired by invertebrates and microorganisms releasing the carbon. And some of it will enrich the soil, becoming more resilient, humic material for a period of time. But it's like when we choose to burn wood rather than coal. It's not fossil fuel. It's part of the same carbon cycle. So it has a smaller impact than digging up fossil fuels and releasing arguably permanently or much more long-term stored carbon. So there's a benefit there, even if there's some released. I think there's another issue we want to talk about, Ajay, when we yes. talk about natural trees, which is the cut versus live tree challenge. If you have the space, definitely buy one with roots that you can keep in a pot, for example, and then you can use the same tree for a few years or you can plant it in the garden. But like us, you know, if you're living in a flat, you're not going to be able to do that. But there are services developing now. The Free Cycle community has a rent-a-tree service. We'll put the link on our website. And can I please say, I found something called the Christmas tree worm. And it lives on the corals. And that's the picture we hope to use for our episode. But please search for the Christmas tree worm and see how incredibly beautiful this worm is. It's just out of this world, I want to say, but it's actually in this world. The world is full of beauty that we don't realize. I'm just in awe of these things. As an oceanographer that looks at benthic communities and stuff, I would argue, yes, marine worms rock. You knew and you never told me, <laughs> Sabina. You never told me about the Christmas tree worm. Okay, enough of Christmas trees on land or in, in the sea. We want to now end the episode talking about what we can do and what we thought is within our power to influence and change is what we can buy and what we can gift. 
So the winter festivities are always surrounded by an enormous amount of temptation. We have Black Friday at the end of November. We have January sales after the solstice or Christmas or whatever you're celebrating in your household. And of course, I think there's plenty of research to show that actually 85%, I think, which found of these goods are available at lower prices throughout the year. But also we need to think in order to resist these temptations, we need to think about what the impact of gift giving is and what we really want to give and what's going to be most meaningful to the people that we love. And that might not be a gift at all. It might be finding something in your cupboard that you know somebody would like or or it might be going down the secret center or the no giving route. We do need to examine the feeling often that re-gifting is sort of cheap or tacky rather than a way of passing on the love. I mean, more and more, I'm looking at the many things we own that actually do mean something to me that I want to share with people I care about. We have a lot of beautiful old books. And in the last year, we've gifted some of those books that really mean something to people we care about, not because we couldn't afford to buy them a gift, but that we wanted to give them something that mattered. It requires a change in thinking. And because of that change that you talked about, that I went through my my drawers the other day and I found at least one present, a necklace from the 1980s that I will re-gift to a friend, a friend who listens to this podcast and I hope she liked the necklace and she liked the thought. But I wouldn't have done it if you didn't tell me about re-gifting Sabina and I, I just wanted to say thank you to you for that. This year, many of us have missed the company of others. When we think about giving, think about in 2021, it might be possible that we can meet up again. And maybe it's thinking about shared experiences and time rather than stuff. So the idea of giving of your time is special. I have friends that how they give their time is homemade gifts or crafts. I love getting something that somebody made for me. And I'd also like to put in one more little plug for buying local. There are a lot of artisans and local independent businesses that are struggling this year. If we can figure out safe ways to buy and give from them when we're buying gifts, rather from the global conglomerates, we will have a healthier economy to emerge into. Without naming names, I'd say don't buy from businesses who don't pay their taxes. Vote with your dollar. In this episode, we've looked at the impact of winter festivities on the environment predominantly. And a lot of the things that we have been used to doing have a very, very poor impact on the world around us and are probably unnecessary. So I think this year, after a year of immense change and suffering, Maybe this is the time to change the way we celebrate the winter solstice, Christmas, or any of the other festivals that happen at this time of year. Maybe we need to think a little bit more about what we eat, who we eat with, trying to reduce our food waste, resisting the temptation to go on a spending spree. Maybe we need to think about whether we have something that we can give that's going to be more meaningful to somebody, either our time or maybe there is something that we already own that we could give to somebody who would appreciate it more. So I think at the end of this really difficult year, this is a time to think about changing the way that we do things and making our future celebrations better for us, better for our loved ones and better for the planet. 
Thanks for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team, Tara Uygur on podcast production and Neil McEwen on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. <laughs>